and find your small group leader, like Shay said. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, we are going to be in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38 today. Um, The last time that I did this, back in February, um, I talked for a long time, and that is not my plan this morning. I'll try to keep it short, so... I'll be in your good graces. That's the goal. Anyway, we'll see what happens. Um, But the passage that we're going to be reading today, I'll go ahead and tell you that I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with. Um, When Tony asked me a few months ago what I wanted to preach next, I was like, well, I definitely want to be in Luke. I love the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is my favorite um, out of the four of them. A lot of people like the, the Gospel of John just because it's a little bit different. It's not considered one of the synoptic Gospels. But Luke I really like because it is. Um, it seems to really have the focus on the underdog and the outcast. That's who Jesus interacts with a lot and who Jesus calls to follow him a lot. Um, last time I talked about... Um, worship ministry, and um, I really enjoyed the opportunity to do that, but I'm, I'm really excited to do something that's not topical this time, that's just in the Word, and like where we've been moving as a church together through the Gospel of Luke. So, um, while this passage may not seem that it fits the underdog outcast category, it actually speaks directly, directly to it, and that's my goal for today. Is this thing popping? Is that what I'm hearing? I'm going to try to move it away. These things are not the easiest, so... Really respect Tony for doing this every single week. I, I do not like this. <laughs> I'll go ahead and tell you that. Sorry. Um, all right. So we're in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38, going through verse 42. I probably need to move to the center, don't I? Right where Claire was. Okay. All right. So Luke chapter 10. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you were anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Get a sip real quick. So... If you're like me, when I read a passage of scripture that kind of reads like a story, I picture it in my head. So this is what I envision is happening in this story. This is not God's word. This is my head, okay? So don't take this literally. This is what's happening as I read this story. So I picture a house, like my house, and Jesus is in the living room. He's with his disciples. He's teaching them. Martha and Mary are scurrying about trying to get things ready for this big meal that's probably a lot larger than they're used to serving for a group of people. So Jesus is teaching. Martha's walking, or Mary's walking through with her water jug about to go get some water for the day. And she hears Jesus say something that just strikes her interest. So she sets down her water jug. She sits at his feet and she listens to him. Takes a few minutes and Martha, or yeah, Martha, I'm going to do that a lot, just so you know. Mary, Martha, they're really similar. It's going to happen. If you hear me say something about one or the other that's like, "Mm, that sounds off. It probably is. I probably meant the other one. Anyway, so Martha's like, a few minutes later, where is Mary? Where did she go? I need help in the kitchen. What is going on? So she pulls Jesus aside and she's like, look, Jesus, I really need Mary. Can you tell her to come in here and help me? She's not doing what she's supposed to do. And um, she thinks that Jesus is going to side with her. 
But instead, Jesus sides with Mary. And so Martha's flabbergasted and like, what in the world? And then the story ends. And you're like, okay, what happened? Did Martha learn her lesson? Did she go and sit and listen to Jesus too? Did Mary get up and help her? Like, what happened? Um, I picture, again, this is just in my head, Martha's in the back. Like, she takes her seat at the back. She has her dish towel over her shoulder, and she's like, okay, I'll listen. You know, that sort of thing. Um, Again, not sure if that's what happened or not, but that's what's happening in my head. As a kid and as a teenager, I liked this story. Sorry, it's popping. I hear it. I know. So when I was younger, I liked this story because it kind of felt like I could look at my mom and be like, you know, mom, there are more important things than chores, you know. I could use this as a passage against her. Um, And I know a lot of you did not know my mom. She died six years ago, but she had these looks that she could give you. If you've heard of looks that could kill, like she could take out a bunch of people with those looks. They were they were hardcore looks, so I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go do what you asked me to do, or like not even respond, just go and do it immediately. Um, but as an adult, as a mom now, I hear this passage, and if, I, if you interpret it the way that I just did in my head, um, it feels like Jesus is minimizing the work that it takes to live in a household. So you read it, and you're like, oh, I don't like that. I wish he didn't say that. It it feels like he's minimizing this work that's necessary and difficult and mind-numbing that we have to do that's preparing and cleaning and all these different things that are just living in a house. Um, If you're a mom on social media, you've probably heard the terms um, weaponized incompetence or carrying the mental load. I'm not going to say what those things are. You can go look them up. But that's what it feels like Mary is doing to Martha in this circumstance. But the problem with interpreting this passage that way is that when Jesus is talking to Martha, he's not actually talking to her about the household work. The purpose of what Jesus says, what this passage says, is not to say, the dishes can wait. Have a quiet time instead. You know, that's a good message. Sometimes that's what we need to do. And of course, we have to prioritize our relationship with God over our to-do list. Um, But those things in our lives are necessary. They're things that we have to do, um, that we have to to serve at times. So like last week, we read the story of the Good Samaritan. And so Jesus is not minimizing the sacrifices that Martha is making in showing hospitality to this group of strangers. this probably a pretty big group. Hospitality was, was and is huge in Jewish and Middle Eastern culture. It's a big deal. Martha was being obedient to the Lord by welcoming strangers into her home. Much like Abraham was obedient to the Lord when he welcomed the two strangers in his home that turned out to be angels. So Martha was being um, a righteous woman in doing this. Um, also, we know that Jesus probably relied on this sort of hospitality a lot as he traveled, staying in people's homes, eating with them. Um, Although we know that he didn't necessarily need this because he fed thousands of people on his own just one chapter before this. There are a couple of key phrases in this passage that show us what's actually at play. First, in verse 39, you can pull that back up. It says that Martha had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. The phrase, sitting at Jesus' feet or at the Lord's feet, 
is not just a physical position that she was in. She was likely sitting at his feet, but that's not what is supposed to be conveyed in this passage. Like, I picture story time at the library. If you have little kids, you've gone there, and you've seen Miss Emily reading books. She's like the purest heart in the world, reading books to the kids. It's the sweetest thing. Um, So it's not exactly that. It's not just sitting there being entertained or even learning in that sense. Um, It's not even just a sign of respect that the teacher is sitting up higher, the students are sitting lower. It's actually an idiom at the time that meant somebody is a disciple. When you sat at someone's feet, you were a disciple. And we know this from um, other texts, but we also know it from the Bible itself. In Acts 22, verse 3, Paul says that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was Paul's rabbi. I'm sorry, I keep messing with this. It's really distracting. Uh, But Gamaliel was Paul's rabbi, just like Jesus was Mary's rabbi. So it seems obvious that that's what's happening. Mary's sitting there. She's learning from Jesus. Jesus does a lot of teaching. The people around him do a lot of listening and learning. In our modern minds, it doesn't make that much of a difference. The story doesn't change that much to say that Mary is acting like a disciple. But discipleship then wasn't the buzzword that it is now. Now we hear discipleship. In our churches a lot, we use this word to mean that we study the Bible and then we try to put it into practice. Um, But that's a really watered-down version of what discipleship was and is supposed to be. Um, Disciples then and now, disciples did not learn from their rabbi just for the sake of learning. They weren't just learners. Just as Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel as his disciple, in order to become a rabbi himself, which is what Paul did, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus was welcoming Mary to become a disciple and to carry the torch of the gospel with his disciples after he left. He is calling her to learn now and tell the world later. Jesus' disciples did everything with him. They ate with him. They traveled with him. um, They learned from him, just like Mary is doing. And he welcomes her into that deeper sense of belonging. And the fact that Jesus is welcoming a woman to be his disciple is a lot bigger of a deal than I think we realize today. Like, we may have an idea that this was a patriarchal society. Men were the ones that were in charge. Women kind of went along. In our minds, it might be like, okay, this is kind of what it was like pre-suffrage when women couldn't vote. But it's a little bit more than that. It's a bit more extreme than probably what we're thinking. So here's just a couple of examples of what it was like to be a woman during that time. Um, In court, a woman's testimony was considered one-third of a man's. So if she was to give her testimony in court, there would need to be three women backing up her testimony to equal the one of a man. In addition to that, women were not taught or allowed to study scripture. They would probably know prayers or scriptures that were quoted in their homes by their fathers or their brothers. Um, But to teach a woman the Torah was considered to be shameful. There's a rabbi, uh, I think it was first or second century rabbi, who stated, the words of the Torah should be burned rather than trusted to women. If that tells you anything about what they thought. Um, another thing is a popular prayer at the time that was prayed in the temple. Uh, men would say, praise be God that he has not created me a Gentile. 
Praise be God that he has not created me a woman. Praise be God that he has not created me an ignorant man. (laughs) If you're a woman in here hearing that, you're like, hold it together. (laughs) That hurts. Don't like nudge your husband. He didn't do anything. He didn't say that. He better not have said that. Um, But based on that prayer, I can't help but, this is an aside, based on that prayer, I can't help but think this is what Paul is thinking of when he says in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all in one Christ Jesus. That was a really common prayer. It was well known, even if you didn't pray it, it was well known that this is something that a lot of people said, and this was a very common position that was held towards women at the time. It was also seen as right and righteous to have this position towards women. There are a lot of other examples, but I don't want that to be what we get stuck on this morning. So all this to say, Martha may have been really annoyed that Mary wasn't helping her in the kitchen. She wasn't helping her get things ready. Um, But she's also likely saying to Jesus, tell Mary she's acting out of line. She's acting like a man, and it's inappropriate. And what's interesting to note is Martha's tone with Jesus here. If you think about it, if you read that, she says, Lord, don't you care? It seems really authoritative. It seems borderline manipulative that she is saying to Jesus, this is what's really important, Jesus. This is what needs to happen. And you kind of have to think that Jesus may have like chuckled a little bit. Like, (laughs) you don't know who you're talking to. Like she knew he was important, but she probably did not grasp that he was God incarnate, that she was telling what needs to be done. It kind of reminds me of like when your kids are about three or so, and they just start making demands of you, and you have to teach them the word please, like um, when they'd come up to you and be like, make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and you're like, okay, say please next time. That's a little bit how Jesus deals with Martha in this situation. His response to her is a gentle rebuke, and what caught my attention here is that he says her name twice. He says, Martha, Martha, It's something that has happened in Scripture. We see it in Scripture in in various places, but it doesn't happen a lot. And every time that it does happen, it is often a gentle rebuke, and it's a call to something higher. Jesus does this a couple times. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, when he's weeping over the disobedience and the hardened hearts of his people. He says, Simon, Simon, when he's talking to Peter and he's telling him that he's going to deny him. God does this with Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and Samuel's names in the Old Testament right before he calls them out of where they are into something greater. And if you've been in church, you know those stories. Those are some big names in the Bible that God has taken them out of where they are and moved them on to serve his kingdom in the world. So when Jesus says Martha's name twice, it's both a warning and it's an invitation. Jesus is inviting Martha to sit at his feet as well. When it says in verse 40 that Martha was distracted by her many tasks, what was she distracted from? She was distracted from sitting at his feet. He had likely already invited her to sit at his feet. He's calling her to discipleship as well. The service starts at his feet, learning from him, and he's calling her into a deeper sense of service. And perhaps the outworking of her service would look the same. We see her again in John chapter 18. And again, she's serving Jesus and his disciples. She's serving them a meal. She was probably pretty good at this hospitality thing. It was probably her gifting to be able to do this. Um, And Jesus doesn't rebuke her in in that story. So there's a good chance that 
this is the ministry that he has provided for her in that because of her skill set. So why is this aspect of the story important for us 2,000 years later? I want to make sure that you know that this story is not just for women. It's not just to have a passage that's like, it justifies why I'm up here this morning. But why this is important for us is that God chooses people that the world wouldn't choose. That's an important thing for us to remember, that God chooses people that the world wouldn't choose. If Jesus were a regular rabbi at the time, he probably would have chosen the men that were the top of their Torah class. But he had a bunch of fishermen. He had a bunch of other guys with regular jobs that didn't make it to the top of their Torah class and couldn't move on in their discipleship. They had to take a regular job. They loved God, but they weren't necessarily the smartest. God chose Paul to be a preacher. And scriptures even tell us he wasn't that great of a speaker. Jesus let women follow him and learn from him and teach others. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 through 29. I actually don't have it in my notes, so I'm going to read it here. But it says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why God chooses people and things that the world would not choose to represent him because it brings him glory. If you know my family, you know that we are big Marvel Avenger movie fans, the MCU. Um, Jacob got us all into that. We have like over 200 little toys that the boys love to play with. Like they, we, we all love, I'll, I'll say not just them. We all love the Avengers. It's just, it's part of who we are. Um, and my favorite movie out of all of them. Now, if you're a big MCU fan, you're going to be like, oh. but my favorite movie out of all of them is the Captain America movie. The original one. You can put that picture up. Uh, it's my favorite movie out of all of them. And like a lot of like the big, big fans are like, that plot's so simple. It's not complicated. It's an origin story. I don't care. It's my favorite. It's a comfort movie. It's like one of those movies that you can watch when you're sick and like wake up and be like, oh yeah, I love this part. You know what I mean? Like this is my comfort movie. I love this movie. But anyway, there is a scene towards the beginning of the movie where Steve Rogers becomes Captain America. And he starts off as this scrawny little guy. You can go ahead and put that picture up. He starts off this scrawny little guy. And I love the CGI that they had to use to take Chris Evans to make him look like this. Um, But he starts off as this scrawny little guy. They give him this serum of some sort, this super soldier serum. Serum. They put him in this chamber. And then after a few minutes, he went in this tiny scrawny little guy. And he comes out this muscle-clad super soldier that's like three feet taller somehow. And he's become Captain America. In that scene, there's this whole discussion between the military leader and the scientists who developed it as to who they should choose, why they choose, who they choose, that sort of thing. Um, And there could be a whole other sermon on that discussion, like why they chose him. But the biggest thing to remember from this is that the only thing that we know from this is that the serum is the only thing that could have turned him from this into Captain America. It It wasn't working out. He didn't work out like six hours a day. He didn't have a high protein diet. He took the serum and that was it. That's a lot like what it is with why God chooses who he chooses in the Bible. Because like with the serum, we know that it's not this skill set 
that this person has automatically. If somebody is a charismatic, good speaker, we might, I'm just going to like hold this out. I'm sorry. Um, We might say that it's their talents that make them good at serving the Lord instead of it's it's God himself working through them. Um, We see people like Moses who had a stutter and God chose to work and speak through Moses. People like Paul, who the Corinthians said in person was unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Remember I said at the beginning, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of underdogs. So I want you to think for just a minute about yourself, what characteristic or trait or life situation you have that makes you think God has limited your ability to know him well and to serve him or something that the world has told you or even other Christians, you're not going to be good at that, or you can't do that because of this. Is it because you're young or because you're old? Is it because you're uneducated or just didn't do well at school? Is it because you're female? Is it because you're weak physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually? Is it because you're chronically sick? Is it because you're shy? Maybe you have an addiction, past or present, that makes you think that God can't love you and God can't use you because of those things. I'll I'll go ahead and be vulnerable that I think my things are that I was I was born shy. I may not seem that way, but I was born really shy, painfully shy. Did not want to talk to strangers. And somehow I'm up here in front of a group of people and that doesn't make sense because God has put that in me. To work through me in that way, that does not make sense to me. If I look back on my, like, seven-year-old self, no way would that girl be talking and, you know, singing up here every single week. That would have scared me to death. I would have peed my pants. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, Also, I think that, um, like, socially, socially a little bit, like, unaware sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't... I wasn't bad at school. I made pretty good grades. I wasn't, like, super smart or anything. But, like, sometimes people say things to me, and it just doesn't connect. You know what I mean? And I'm like, that's a reason I shouldn't be serving the Lord. But God even uses those things to say, that, that's exactly why you should be serving me. But there's examples all over Scripture for each of those limitations that I listed. And, and beyond that, that God used these people, not just in spite of their limitations, but often because of their limitations. Think about Timothy. He was young. Noah was old. The disciples were fishermen and not scholars. Jacob was a liar. Rahab was a prostitute. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a nobody. Priscilla was a woman that taught Apollos. Both David and his son Solomon seemed to have struggled with depression. Paul had a thorn in his flesh that was likely a physical ailment. Here's an important thing to remember. Following Jesus does not necessarily mean that your limitations will change. You may follow Jesus wholeheartedly and still be really socially awkward. You may follow him wholeheartedly and still be poor. You'll still be young or old. You'll still be a woman. But despite what the world says about these limitations... Jesus continues to say, sit at my feet and follow me. God may call you to do something completely different from what you imagine, but it's his glory that will shine and not anyone else's. Finally, I don't want, to, I, I don't want us to miss out on another important part of this passage. We've talked about who Jesus calls. Let's talk about what he calls them to. 
It's just as important. Jesus says to Martha, only one thing is necessary. Can you pull that verse up? Perfect. Thank you. Y'all are, so, y'all are better than me at this. So good. Um, he says, only one thing is necessary. And the whole time that I was studying this passage, this phrase plagued me. Because I was like, what is that one thing? What does he mean? How does that apply to me? What is that? He doesn't outright state what that one thing is. And that's kind of the point. Jesus calls us to do the same thing that he is calling Martha and Mary to do. And that's to sit at his feet. The frustrating thing is that for us here today, Jesus' feet aren't here. Jesus isn't here. You know, we can't sit and listen to his teaching in the same way that Martha and Mary did. So what does it mean for us to sit at his feet and to be his disciple? Our temptation might be to take this too literally and turn it into a this versus that situation where Martha represents those that have an active serving kind of faith and Mary represents those that have a contemplative studying kind of faith. And both of those types of people tend to look at each other and consider themselves more spiritual than the other person. The active people look at the contemplative people and think that they're serving is more spiritual, and the contemplative people think that their study and learning is more spiritual than the active people. But the one thing that Jesus is telling us is necessary is about the posture of our hearts, not the posture of our bodies as we listen to him. We cannot always be sitting still and have a perfect environment as we read our Bibles and as we pray. We might have to be running around fixing peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or changing diapers or chasing our dogs down the road, which is something I had to do earlier this week. Whatever it is, whatever we are doing, our hearts should be in a place of readiness and reception for what the Lord has to say to us. I'm forever grateful to the people that taught me how to have a quiet time and taught me the practice the importance of having a quiet time. Setting aside daily time to pray and to spend in the presence of God, it's incredibly beneficial to us as believers. I love starting my day that way. It just feels, I feel better when I'm able to do that. But I'll be honest that lately it's become a bit of a routine. It's just part of what's built into my schedule. And I've had a really hard time not looking at my phone, not remembering what I've read, kind of eyes glazing over as I'm reading the Bible. Um, and I, I just can't remember later that day what I learned in my quiet time that morning. And I realized God really spoke to me as I studied this passage that I don't spend much time waiting for God to speak to me in that time and in any other time as I live my life. Waiting to receive from God what he wants to say. It's more of a demand on my part. If you think about it it's, as your hands, it's more of a give me, give me, give me. This is what I want. This is what I need. Instead of a I'm ready to receive what you have for me. The posture of our hearts is something that we are to have all the time. This sitting at the feet of Jesus posture. As we read scripture and pray, as we're waiting on God to speak, I realize for myself how often that I read God's word just to read it instead of asking God, what do you have to say today? I spend time in prayer, and I'm talking, 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 talking. I could be saying really good things, but I'm not spending time listening as I pray. As I pray, The disciples, when they sit at the feet of their rabbi, they spend most of the time listening. There is back and forth. There are questions. But as learners, as disciples, we sit and we listen to what he has for us.
It's not something that just clicks into place and is easy once it does. It's something that takes time, something we have to cultivate and work on. But the more that we open our hearts and our minds to what Jesus has to say for us before we serve, the more we are able to hear him. Just as Jesus' disciples were with him all the time, he's with us all the time. We have access to the Father through the Son. No matter where we are, where we go, we are able to hear the voice of the Lord, of our Lord, if we only take the time to listen. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that your presence would be here among us, and that we would leave here with your presence still. I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear, that you would speak to us individually, that we would know your voice, Lord, that you would give us clarity in what you were trying to say to us. Help us to love you above all else and to choose you above all else. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.